and welcome to this podcast. I'm Laura Horton. And I'm Michael Bentley. Thank you for joining us, everybody. And welcome to a special guest edition podcast. We love doing these because it's a twist on our Hangout podcast. Because instead of answering questions, Michael and I are asking them instead. So today, Michael and I are talking to Dr. Andy Denny. Now, Andy has a great story to share with us and you. We know bits and bobs, and he's going to enlighten us with his fantastic story. And also, Andy's got so many top tips that hopefully we've got time to get the very best ones out of him. Because I think Andy's top tips will really support dentists for years to come. Dentists will be just thinking, wow, amazing tips from Andy. What else do you need to know? Uh, well, Andy and his dentist wife, Becky, they set up a squat practice 15 years ago in the Southwest. And I think what's really important that you must know is that Andy's got a work-life balance. He has this. It's happening. It's live in action. Andy works three and a half days a week clinically, and that leaves the rest of the time for him to really spend with his family, to focus on his health and fitness. And it also leaves time for his second biggest passion, apart from being a dentist, second passion is teaching dentists. And he's travelled the world to learn from the best. And we'll talk about that today, I'm sure. And on top of that, he's also lectured internationally as well, which is very posh, very good. And he's also won Aesthetic Dentistry Awards. Now, for our international listeners, I have to let you know, the Aesthetic Dentistry Awards happen annually uh, in the UK, in London. And dentists submit cases. There are various categories and they are all judged anonymously. So the judges have no idea who the dentists are. They're judging purely on the clinical talent that they have in front of them. And Andy has won full mouth rehab case, which is awesome. Adult orthodontic. And you, uh, also, Andy has been highly commended as best aesthetic practice. I mean, you can't get better than that, can you? So let's talk to the man himself. Uh, there's so much more going, we're going to learn. So without further ado... Hello to Andy. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Michael, for having me. And um, it's great to be with you today. And uh, hopefully I can uh, hit you with some interesting little tips um, and ideas for your listeners. I'm sure you can. I hope I've not put you under too much pressure. (laughs) Uh, Hopefully not. (laughs) I'll do my best. Oh, brilliant. Andy, I, I would like to start by talking to you about something that I haven't mentioned into the, in the introduction there. I'd really love to learn more about your experience in the Navy as a dental officer. You did that for seven years. And yeah. I'd just love to know, how did this happen? How was the experience for you? Could you tell us about that? Yeah, certainly. Um, well, it was always something that was at the back of my mind when I was coming to the end of my degree. Um, but I did a first year in practice in those days, the VT scheme was voluntary. So we did the, I did a year of VT and during that time, I went and did my uh, very posh sounding officer selection interviews down at the um, Royal Officer School in Dartmouth. And from there, I joined the Navy as a dental officer. And having done the initial uh, officer training and bits and pieces, uh, was sent off as a jobbing dental officer to various establishments and units around the world. Um, Part of the reason why I chose the Navy was because 
being a bit of a uh, sporty person who likes the outdoors and stuff, I wanted to go and spend some time working with the Royal Marines, which I had the uh, very great honour of doing. I worked with the Marines for three and a half years wow. as a Mando dental officer, uh, doing the Royal Marines training down in Limpston, and then uh, going off and joining a commando unit where I basically, wherever they went, I went with the doctor and uh, we were their medical support for whatever happened. Some things more interesting than others. Um, a lot of it was a bit like a, a, a great big PGL holiday that you've been paid for. Lots of adventurous training, climbing, scuba diving, swimming, skiing, all that stuff. But there was a bit of payback with a couple of operational roles that maybe weren't quite as much fun, but were certainly interesting. Yeah. Um, but what they were very good at was um, getting me through and helping put me through a number of my postgraduate courses that really set me up and put me in a great position for when I left the Navy. But we did, yeah, we did well. After I'd finished with the Marines, we had the pleasure of a two-year posting, just over two-year posting. By that time, I was married to Becky. Um, we had one small ankle biter and another one on the way. And uh, <laughs> got a nice married accompanied job in sunny Gibraltar for two and a half years, which was lovely. And we had a great time out there. And then eventually, after a bit of time back in the UK, decided that it was time to uh, make our own way and do our own thing, go back to practice. And, and that was us. Well, it sounds like such a fabulous experience. And I have to ask you, I mean, the Marines, I mean, I'm sitting here smiling. How amazing. And I think what I really want to ask you now is in regards to the Navy and in particular, you know, the world-class team of Marines, what experiences did you have with leadership and how did that support you in setting up a practice? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, again, being a bit of a um, personal goal setter and planner all my life, one of the reasons that I set my heart on joining the forces um, was that I knew that the undergraduate degree and a lot of dental training doesn't give you much in the way of management or leadership training. And I felt that finding something else that would, would be a good idea. And certainly the forces, what they do in bucket loads is leadership and management training. And just some of the ideas completely non-dental that I got for helping to build a team, helping to motivate a team, helping to bring teams together when things aren't going well, how to work together when you're at the top and when you're sometimes down at the bottom. And uh, that was invaluable and has put me in a really good position for the way we've built our practice and, and developed what we've developed over the years. And I think that's, you know, testament to what you've actually set up <clears throat> is so important so when you set up your squat practice 15 years ago what I think is coming through very clearly is that you had a, a pre-set of goals that you took into and actually formulated your business on rather than just going in and 
sort of trying to sort something out from the start. Was that a very clear plan so that you could get it right from the start and work on your clinical passions? Yes, definitely. Um, I think the key word is vision and um, having the right vision. The, at that time, our ideas and views of what we thought the ideal practice would be. Uh, and that very much helped us put things in place, put the right team together, set the practice up in the way we wanted it to work. We had looked at buying into other practices or buying out other practices, but just felt that in a way we'd be buying somebody else's vision and quite often, a lot of the time, somebody else's headaches that we'd have to deal with before converting that into what we really wanted. And so by having a, a strong vision and having worked with people who helped us put together those visions, I think it set us in a, in a good place and ongoing vision and reviewing that has been something that has been very important to the both of us. Um, Cause as I'm sure you know, from what you've both done in your lives is that sometimes that vision changes um, and what you think was your vision 10 years ago, maybe changes and you have different priorities and you have to be prepared to modify that vision and reset the course, reset the compass and, and move in a different direction. Yeah, absolutely. And it, you can definitely feel from, you know, what you said so far that you've been doing that all the way. And what I think is really clear as well, that not only being clear about the vision and, and what you were going to do in terms of the leadership experience that you've got and actually setting up the squat with the right vision moving forward, you've also made some really clear clinical choices about what you were going to do in the practice and actually trying to make sure that your patients understood what your vision was as well so that you actually get the right people in and I know that you've made several investments in your career to do with your clinical dentistry can you just talk us through what decisions that you made and why you made those yeah certainly Michael um definitely I think as I, I've said to you on other occasions, investing in yourself as a dentist is key to A, the enjoyment of your future career and setting the tone, the vision and the direction of what you want. Um, maybe some people might say I have an element of being a bit of a control freak about me, which is why as we've developed a multidisciplinary practice, it is still just myself and Becky as the only dentist in the practice. We don't have a team of specialists here, but what we have developed between us over the years is as close to a specialist knowledge across a range of areas to put us in the position to plan treatment comprehensively, to understand how the different specialities within dentistry work together correctly and how you can give the best predictable outcome to the patient. And I think the key to all of that, if I give one piece of advice to a younger person or anybody getting involved with dentistry is treatment planning and diagnosis and understanding where you're starting with everything is the key 
to a successful outcome, a successful practice life and a happy practice life. If you get the basics, the foundations, the understanding correct, the rest of the treatment will flow from there and it makes it easier for the rest of the team to follow what you're trying to achieve. So yes, I've done courses on implantology. I've done lots of orthodontics courses around the world, both in the UK. I've been over to Korea and the Far East where they are super amazing at what they can do with lingual orthodontics. Um, but I do think one of the key decisions I made was to go over and invest quite a lot of time and money um, with Frank Spear at the Spear Institute in the States because they have a totally, totally amazing idea of how the whole patient journey and the patient treatment process should be looked at. And in fact, one of the key things that I've probably learned from Frank over the years is he spent a lot of time working with clinical psychologists so that they could help patients understand treatment better and make the right decisions for them. And that is one of the areas that really is probably my passion now is helping people make the right decisions for them. Jan, it's really powerful what you just said there about the treatment planning aspects and getting it right from the start and how that just paves the way for everything to go as planned, to be great for you, to be great for the patients. We're talking about comprehensive dentistry and you know the fantastic investments that you've made. How would a dentist embark on becoming you know moving from a single tooth dentist as I call it to a comprehensive dentist how, how do they start what should they do what are your tips I'd say a they need to have a good general background in dentistry and across the the full gamut of of specialist areas I don't mean they need to be a specialist in everything but they need to have an understanding or have colleagues who have that knowledge that can help them. But I think what they need to have is an ability with their team, because it is a team process on how to get the right information out of the patient to find out what it is that a patient really wants to achieve from the health of their mouth, from the appearance of their mouth, from the function of their mouth. And often, Patients are very nervous and they don't come to us, flags waving, bells jangling, saying, can you do me a full mouth rehab, please? That's what I need. Because they don't know. They mm. know they've got a broken tooth, maybe. They know they've got a couple of teeth missing. What they don't often know is why their mouth has potentially ended up in the position that it's in now. So I would say... The goal is being able to understand what a patient would like. I think it's being able to fully diagnose what's happening in a patient's mouth. I don't mean just addressing the problem they say they've come with. I mean having a comprehensive overview look at everything that's happening and then having the ability 
with the support of a good treatment coordinator to sit down and have an open discussion with the patient where you're essentially educating them on what you're seeing and then allowing them with you to make the right decisions about where they want to go. One of my favorite phrases is that patients don't know what they don't know until they know it. Mm. And I know it sounds a bit like gobbledygook, but if you think about it, until somebody's educated you that there is a problem or why there's a problem, it's not something a patient can comprehend. They've not done five years at dental school, 10 years of postgraduate education. Dentistry is a dark art to them. They don't know. They just think it's the place they go to have a filling and their teeth clean. So mm. we need to be able to educate the patients about how much we can actually do to help them. I think that's so important. And I love the way that you use, Andy, the word education. I think that is so the right way of explaining treatment to patients as well, that actually we provide an educational service and we provide you with options that can support you. And I think that you've talked about a lot of elements there that might be new to some dentists and, and some dentists might be thinking, maybe I need to relook at that as a focus. So just want to ask you, how long do you spend doing a comprehensive assessment for a patient and how long do you spend doing treatment planning and the investment in that? I know you've talked about using a treatment coordinator as well. So you've discussed a lot of elements. How long does it take you to do those elements and why do you think that's really important to spend that time on those? Um, the whole process takes quite a, a long time, several hours potentially, um, but it's not necessarily all my clinical time. And that is where having a team approach to this is essential because financially it wouldn't be viable to spend hours and hours just on an initial consultation and treatment plan discussion if it was all your clinical time. And that's why it's important that a TCO is involved, treatment coordinator is involved in doing a lot of the fact finding, the relationship building, the initial discussions with the patient, finding out the, what you might call the soft facts from the patient, their personal social history type stuff, where they are, what it is they're trying to achieve, why, time scales, all those sorts of things doing the photography for you, you have team members doing the radiography for you, so that your time is the clinical assessment, which is important and has to be comprehensive. You can't do, in my book, a thorough new patient comprehensive assessment in anything less than an hour of my clinical time. And that will involve looking at a whole range of things from the occlusion, the muscle and TMJ, the teeth, the gums, the bone, everything, the occlusion as far as orthodontics is concerned. We look across everything that might be viable, even if it's a patient who comes in saying they've got one tooth missing. I don't want to be accused of missing anything. 
Mm. It's very important in today's day and age. A lot of people talk about medico legal stuff. We have to be thorough. We have to ensure that we've done a thorough job so that we can talk to the patient. Not every treatment plan, am I saying, will turn into a full mouth rehab. I'm not looking to find full mouth rehabs on every patient. Often a patient may not need a great deal and we can have that conversation by the end of that one hour appointment. Look, Mr. Smith, your mouth is generally healthy. There's no major issues. This is what we've looked at and I can review it with them then with the photos because again, the team member will have uploaded them onto the system on the computer so we can show the patient there and then. If it's straightforward that all they maybe need to come back for is some time with the hygienist and maybe one or two little fillings, that can be all dealt with within that hour. Where we then would get a patient back again is if the history and what we're looking at is a bit more complicated and maybe we are getting into multiple units of dentistry or problems with the jaws with the TMJ, with the occlusion, orthodontics, other things like that, implants. That is the point at which what we would do is let the patient go away. They know that they may need to come back and have a second review appointment. That again is kept as minimal as possible. Might take, I did earlier this morning, about 15 minutes of my time in between patients. The rest of the time is with the treatment coordinator who will, once I've reviewed what that I'm seeing and what I'm thinking would be appropriate for them, the treatment coordinator can then confirm that the patient's understood what we've looked at and then help them plan and book any necessary appointments should they wish to carry on with treatment. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's so slick, Andy. It really is. And like you say, it takes you get to do the very best of what you want to do. You get to work in the clinical systems that are comfortable for you, that you've designed, they happen consistently. And I think something you've just said there is really good that you're not, you know, it's not every patient is going to be a full mouth rehab and they don't come in with that request in any way. A lot of dentists say, how do I get more full mouth? I want to do advertising for full mouth rehab. And the answer is, well, the patients don't know, do they? No. They don't know that. So it's really difficult to, to do that. And really, when they do come in and they are proactive and they're ready to listen, and when you deliver your communication as you are, those that have that need a rehab and have it is just really hitting the jackpot, isn't it? It's not a frequent thing. No, but it's, it's about the patients trusting you. And when they see how thorough you are, they're yeah. more likely to listen to the advice you give them, especially if you do it, as Michael was saying, from a point of view of education yeah. as opposed to sales. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's it, isn't it? You know, that's when the patients start to build that trust because, and, you know, they're not going to just come in, have an examination with a dentist and get a treatment plan for a full mouth rehab and go ahead with it. It doesn't work like that. No. The process has to be slowed down. You've got to spend the time to build the trust. And that's obviously why you're, you're so successful at it, which is that's wonderful. I wanted to ask you about some, uh, for some more top tips from you, Andy. And I think really one of them is top tips for dentists buying a practice. And I know we've, we, we have talked about that, but 
I think one of the things that really concerns dentists about buying, about setting up a squat is cash flow and lack of it. <laughs> yeah, um, definitely that. Yeah, so I understand why people want to buy practices that are existing, they will have that cash flow coming in, but like you said, you've got all of the other issues to contend with, hence the reason you've set up a squat. But for dentists that are looking at setting up squat practices, what are your tips there in regards to budgeting, planning, um, cash flow, finance in the early days? Um, I think it is crucial that, as we said at the beginning of the podcast, you've got to have a very clear vision of what it is you're trying to create. Have a very tight plan of what you want to do in terms of the architectural building side of the practice, putting it together, very tight, strict budget that you stick to. Don't let things get carried away because you've seen some fancy grand designs type frosted glass panels that cost the earth and you really want them. <laughs> um, don't get too excited by that. Go for good, clean, classy, clear cut appearance. Also, you have to have a good relationship with a bank, with a bank manager and your accountant because you need the financial team around you to help you. I think you have to be prepared to tighten your belt a little bit because it will be tight in the early days. But actually what surprise does initially is that what you find is that one of your USPs, as it were, unique selling points in the early days is that you have availability of appointments mm -hmm. and you would be surprised how important that is to patients. They can see you really quickly and actually I soon learned a lot of dentists get hung up about the idea of their books being full six weeks or eight weeks in advance. Yeah. But do you know what? The stuff that's in your book in eight weeks time, you can't earn today. You can only earn it on the day that you're there doing the dentistry. The patients that are there in six or eight weeks time can cancel. Yeah. Mm. What we found is that within probably a couple of months, I'd come in in the morning and my morning would be full. There may be a couple of gaps in the afternoon. But by lunchtime, my afternoon would be full as well. And the next day was filling up. And yes, it is a bit hand-to-mouth to start with. But what you're starting to realize is that the cash flow comes from seeing patients and getting treatments completed quickly. So if you can offer somebody the option to have a treatment plan completed in quite a short space of time, because you've got the availability, that's one of the, the key selling points with a, with a squat. Um, but yeah, it's, it's going to be hard times as well. I mean, you've got the same thing with if you buy a practice. Yes, you've got built-in cash flow, but you've also got massive loan or debt of buying the, uh, the practice. And you're potentially paying for a load of goodwill of patients that you might not necessarily want in the long term as you develop the practice into your own vision. Mm, definitely. <clears throat> Fantastic tips around that area. A little bit of a change of focus now, because we know one of the things that you've managed to achieve, which again is something that dentists ask us a lot about, is actually 
a work-life balance and I think now when we're thinking about mental health and dentist burnout and all of the different pressures that are involved in working in dentistry now actually making sure you've got a life-work balance is very important and I know that you've got really good routines set in place for that so can you share your top tips in that area? Yeah certainly I mean from a I think you have to accept that you can't totally separate um, your work life and your personal life. They are intimately linked, whatever you do. Um, but you have to give yourself enough time to rest and recover between the, the hard work that you do to, to earn the money. Um, when we set up the practice, I always said I didn't want to work more than three and a half days a week clinically. Um, I wanted some extra time to spend with the kids as they were growing up. Um, and I wanted enough time to spend on either myself educationally, uh, postgraduate stuff, courses. And I just love teaching and educating not only patients, but other dentists and helping them improve the way their practices work, the way their clinical skills are. And so that's freed me up to have the time to, to do that. And so the way I run my life generally is that I have set routines. We have set routines in the practice. We have our morning huddles. We have our evening huddles. We take a break or we have a break in block breaks in the practice about every six or seven weeks. Um, some of them are holiday. Some of them are non-clinical working breaks where we might um, have a, a bit of vision reviewing. We may do some non-clinical work on the practice rather than in the practice. Uh, and personally, I'm very keen on looking after yourself. Um, and although a lot of people look at me a bit strange and disagree, um, one of my favorite habits is that I get up early every day. As we were discussing earlier, I get up at 5 a.m. in the morning. Um, I have a set routine. I jump out of bed, uh, whether it's dark, whether it's wet, whether it's sunny and the birds are singing. I'll put my running shoes on, go for a short run with the dog. I'll come back in. I do a bit of self-time so I do meditation I do thinking about just being present and getting my head in order and then I'll have a nice strong cup of coffee to keep me going at that time in the morning and <laughs> do a bit of um, motivational educational stuff and that's not necessarily dental stuff it could be reading from non-dental literature and um, motivational stuff it could be watching or listening to TED Talks or podcasts. Um, I'll journal and I'll just make sure I've got a plan for where I'm going today. Um, and that gives me enough time to get all that done before the rest of the house wakes up and I can join them for breakfast and chatting and sorting out, helping them get to the bus or to school or what have you. Um, and then I'm ready to hopefully be wide awake for the team when we start our morning huddle in the morning before we uh, get going with the patients. Wow. 
you know, it's really interesting and it's absolutely fascinating. And at the start of the day, there are some really good books on that. Um, 5am club uh, i think is one that you you recommend is it Andy? Yep. Robin Sharma. that's it uh, i've read the morning miracle and the importance of that start of the day and being proactive really sets you in a positive light for the rest of the day the planning the time and would would you ever go back would you ever not do that do you ever skip a day yeah i mean you have to be real um you know sometimes uh certainly if you've been a bit you've had you know sometimes either work-wise or health-wise you might have a bit of a dip and you need a bit more rest mm. i don't mind having a bit of a lie-in sometimes um if we're on holiday i don't always get up early but you know what sometimes my body clock just <laughs> wants to and um actually i mean the, the kids um, becky think i'm a bit crazy we were on holiday in um Tarifa in Spain earlier in the year and I'd still get up at just after 5am. I had a bit of a lie-in, I think it was half five. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> a treat. <laughs> yeah. and, and I'd love nothing more than I'd go for a little walk or a run on the beach as the sun was coming up. And do you know what? When you've got the beach freshly cleaned by the sea and no one else on it at that time in the morning and you're watching the sun come up, it is a beautiful time of day and really, really puts you in a good mood for the rest of the day. It doesn't matter what happens after that. You've, you've seen, you know, the wonders of life and you're just feeling good. And Absolutely. I think that's what it is. Yeah, it's part of the day that you know not everybody else sees. Yeah, and it's about giving yourself that headspace to prepare to be fresh, to be ready. And it, it, it's so important. And I think, you know, it's, it's really inspirational. Your routine so inspirational. Gosh, right, Andy, so many top tips. I think the key things that I'm um, taking from, from this to summarise, firstly, about doing what's right in regards to treatment planning and giving yourself the time to treatment plan effectively so it supports you, the patient, and everyone else in the practice, whether it's, you know, something that's, not complex or something that is giving yourself time to treatment plan and communicating that effectively as well as developing a team so you've sound your nurses are up skilled you've got treatment coordinators you've really invested you know to build those people up to support you so developing a team that can support you is so important your goals your vision you've said about it's okay if your vision changes you need to regroup and you know plan ahead again and lastly the, the routines as you say you've got routines in your practice and you've got routines in life and that just adds to to your success Andy I cannot thank you enough for joining us on All our right. podcast pleasure uh, I love listening to your podcasts and uh, following on Facebook and stuff it's uh, it's a pleasure to uh, do something back for you guys the well, thank you very much indeed for being a wonderful uh, special guest on a Horton Hangout. And thank you very much for listening. And you can check out our podcast online at horton-consulting.com. We'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe so you can be notified of our next episode.